0: Amen, why don't you grab your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to give you a second to read through on your own, 3 through 14. Um, so for you just to have a second to read through that, just to familiarize yourself with it and to uh, make sure that's in your heart as we start kind of talking down through it. So Ephesians chapter 1, 13, or 3 through 14, why don't you take a second to, to read through that personally. If you need to look on with somebody beside you there, no problem. Verse three through fourteen. <clears throat> Okay, as you're finishing up there, we are in the, actually the beginning of a, of a series in, in Ephesians. So we're going to be here for a while, so um, get ready to sit in it. I'd encourage you to read through it a lot during the week to prepare yourself for it. Um, we're going to be in the next little passage next week, so, so make sure you're ready when you come in um, next Sunday. And we're going to start kind of chopping down through it as well. Um, a guy named John Mackey, he was 14 years old. I think it was 1903. He was in Scotland. And he goes up, takes his Bible in hand, up to the Scotland Highlands. I would like to be there right now, right? So he goes up into the Scotland Highlands, Bible in hand. I'm 14 years old and reads the book of Ephesians. He later became the the, the, uh, head guy at Princeton Seminary. I lost the word there, but he became the guy at Princeton Seminary. Okay, now this is what happened in those highlands in Scotland, 14 years old, 1903. This is what happened as he read through the book of Ephesians. He said this about it. It's going to be on the screen for you. By reading the book, he said, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, a new experience, a new attitude toward people. I loved God. Jesus became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. This was his um, feeling after reading the book of Ephesians. This is what this book, the Holy Spirit, blowing through him, what this book did to him. He went on to say this. What we read here in the book of Ephesians it's truth that sings. It's doctrine set to music. This was his view. Now, now, all teenagers, look up here just for a second. He's 14 years old when this goes down for him. And so God just encourage some of you teenagers that it is not too early to have those sort of moments where everything becomes new, everything in life is altered. This is what happened to him at the age of 14 as he opens this book. I mean, this has been one of my prayers for us over the next 7, 8, 9, 10, 15 weeks that we're going to be in here, is that God might do that for some of us, that the Holy Spirit might blow in our heart a great big passion to pursue Jesus. Right, that that he would do that for us. That maybe for some of us, he needs to blow on some embers that are just kind of smoldering to really bring those back to life. This white hot zeal for Jesus. Right. So maybe God would do that for you and I as we start chomping through this book. Okay. So we're in um, chapter one. Let me give you a couple of of zoom out observations of 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 this chapter, specifically these eleven verses three through fourteen first observation would go like this. This is a passage 3 through 14 that is about God. If you're taking notes, that's a big thing to grab. This passage is about God. Okay, now we said this last week, and I'll throw this back at you one more time, that uh, the most important thought you will ever think, ever think, the most important one that you will ever have come through your mind is the one immediately following the word God. That thought right there that just happened, That thing that just came in and out of your mind when you heard the word God, that thought right there that immediately followed that word is the most important thought you will ever think. That is the thought that's going to determine everything else about your life. That is the thought that's going to alter everything or not. That is the thought that's going to present this compelling, beautiful picture of God or not. That is the most important thought you will ever think. I think sometimes we get this wrong with how change happens in the Christian life. Like, I think sometimes we think that this is how change happens. We just start trying harder. Like, we just kind of white-knuckle this thing and do this and just try a little bit. That's how we change. That is not how we change. We don't change by trying harder. We change by seeing more clearly. That's how we change. So this is a passage about God. If you want to know one of the reasons why I think... Just courageous men and women have by and large vanished from the ranks of Christian circles in America. It is because there is little preaching on the nature of God. You go to Barnes and Noble and you'll find 15 books on how to manage your checkbook. On how to create a better marriage. On how to date. We'll find books on everything. You start trying to find one on this is God. This is God's nature. This is who God is. This is his attributes. This is your God. And you're going to. That's a long search. Long search. So this is the passage that we get to step back and we get to see Paul say, this is who your God is. We're all theologians in this room. let me say this again. It's just a matter of whether or not we're a good one. And Ephesians chapter 1 helps us be a good one. Ephesians chapter 1 has nothing to do about your marriage, but it, your marriage rides on Ephesians chapter 1. You being a good employee, a good employer, has not, it's not it, but it rides on Ephesians chapter 1. On you seeing this God that Paul unpacks for us. So this is a passage about God. You might could even think of it, if you want to, maybe a different way to outline this passage might be, 3 through 6 would be, this is the plan of the Father. If you look at verse 3 through verse 6, 7 through 12 is the plan is accomplished through the Son, by the Son, by Jesus. And then 13 and 14, the Spirit applies it. Okay, so so you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit all show up. The, the Trinity all show up in this passage. So it's a passage about God. First observation. Second observation goes like this. And, and maybe I'll introduce it by just throwing out a, a Uh, Just a general idea here on this passage. When you read this in English, you automatically miss something off the top when you read the passage. You read it in English, and there's three or four sentences that kind of make up uh, verse 3 through 14. In Greek, the original language, that is all one sentence. So your English majors are going, what? There's no periods in there, right? The punctuation isn't correct. And so this kind of leads into this next thought, and the one we're going to camp on this morning, is this passage is praise. This passage is us getting to see personal praise from Paul. Okay, there's a reason why there's no punctuation. There's a reason why there's no periods. Because we are seeing a man in the midst of worship. There is no time for punctuation here. There is no time to get the grammar right. You have got a man in the midst of saying, this is God and I am so thankful for him. Look at verse three. Here's how he starts it off. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is starting this whole thing out with, bless God for what he has done to me and for me. This is a picture of praise in Paul. This is a man caught up in the moment, looking at God, all that God has done for him and saying, Blessed be that God. Bless that God. Praise that God. This is a picture of praise. Okay, so you need to see the context as we start this. We're about to get into some hotly debated verses. Right? See the context. The context is not controversy. The context is worship. The context is not controversy. It's not a problem. It's praise. What Paul unfolds here is what he is contented in, what his comfort is. Paul unpacks praise for us. So that's the context. So it's really important as we start walking forward that we see that. That Paul's not, he's not unpacking this theological argument for us. He is saying, this is our God. Let's praise that God. That's what he's saying. Okay. So with that said, here's the question we're going to answer. Why is Paul in the midst of this praise? Like, what is it about this passage that Paul is praising? What is it about this passage? Like, maybe, maybe you could have this picture when you look and read this passage. Maybe you should get this picture of Paul on his knees. Listen, he's in prison as he writes this. In prison. And picture Paul on his knee, one hand chained, Right? And pen in the other hand. And as he is on his knees, riding in wonder at what God has done, I maybe picture like these tears flowing from his face. That's the picture of Ephesians chapter 1. It's praise. It's worship. Paul is caught up in the moment here. So what is it about what he's about to unpack that would make him do that? That would make him fall to his knees in worship of his great God? So, five answers. Five reasons. That Paul is is on his knees praising. That he starts it out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and here's my hope for us this morning. By the end of the morning, we might be on our knees joining Paul. Praising his great God for all that he has done. Right? Okay, so here we go. Reason number one. Why Paul's praising. Because we are in Christ. Let's start out here in verse verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in what? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Go ahead and underline that word, in Christ, or those two words. Eleven times in the first 14 verses, you're going to see this word, in Christ, or a synonym of, through Christ, through his blood. Eleven times. Let me outline these for you. Look at verse 2. It's going to say this, that the people in Ephesus, these saints, they were faithful in Christ. And that's not necessarily highlighting the fact that they are faithful. It's highlighting the fact that Christ is faithful. Because they are in Christ, they're able to be faithful. Okay, look at verse 3. We just read this one. Blessed uh, God has blessed us in Christ. This is how every blessing flows to you. Like if I were to ask you this question this morning, are you blessed? What would you say? Okay, now you know what most of us think when we think that? Here's what we think. Well, I've got a house. I've got a marriage. I've got kids. Like, I drove here, right? Might have not been a great, but I got here. in a. Co- okay, so, so we instantly go to these physical things, right? Paul is writing this in prison, and he is saying, bless God because he has blessed me in Christ. So whatever physical things you want to point at, and that is ways that God blesses us, no doubt. But that is a small fraction of the blessing God has blessed you with. It is not dependent upon your circumstances. The blessing that you are blessed with in Christ is dependent upon Jesus. It is the spiritual reality that God has blessed you with. And he's about to unpack about... Ten of these in this passage, that he has chosen you, that that he has, I mean, all these things that he's adopted you, he's redeemed you, all of these spiritual blessings. And he is saying, bless God because he has blessed me in Christ. All of these spiritual realities are mine in Jesus. Verse 8, he says, in grace, he lavished them on us. That's the reality of the blessing. So whatever temporal, physical things that we have, that's a pale picture to the spiritual realities that we have in Christ, right? Okay, you keep going there. That's verse 3. That's the second one. Um, look down to verse 5. We're chosen in Christ. That's how we're chosen. Verse, uh, verse 5, adopted through Christ. Verse 6, blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. So the blessings of God flow through Jesus. That's how we get them. They flow through Jesus and to you if you're in Christ. That's how we get them, through Christ. Um, look at verse 7. We're redeemed, how are we redeemed? Through his blood, through Jesus. That's where redemption is, in Christ. Look at verse 9. Um, God sets forth this, this plan, this mystery of his will, and he does that in Christ. Look at verse 10. This, verse 10. this is a major theme in the, in the passage. Um, the, the world is fractured. The, the world is out of rhythm with God. And God is on this plan to unite all things to him. That's what God's about. That's what he's doing. And look at how he unites all things in verse 10. He does that in him, in Christ. That's how he unites. If you want to know how you're reconciled to God, it is in Christ. That's how. Look at verse 11. Paul owned nothing. He had no car. He had no house. He was a vagabond, right? I mean, this guy owned nothing. And he's going to say this in this this chapter. I am filthy rich. Filthy rich rich in christ look at verse 11 we have this inheritance he says we've obtained it how in him that's how it is like god in christ has given us a bank account that is inexhaustible that's the picture in christ we've got this inheritance and listen we don't have to wait for somebody to die to give it to us christ has already died to give it to us that's our inheritance look at verse 13 twice in this verse It says, in Him we believe. It is He is the object of our faith. It is only in Him that we put our trust. Only in Him that we place our faith. It is in Him that we believe. And then he's going to say this in, in verse 13. That it's in Him that we are sealed. We are sealed. We are secure in Him. Paul is looking at us and he's saying, Listen, this is the reality. This is it. Why am I praising? Because I am in Christ. That is why. That's it. Okay, now now every man look up here at me. Paul is saying in this passage, this is your identity. This is it. This is where you plant your feet. Now look at me, all men in here. It is not in your job. That's a fickle foundation, amen? It is not in your marriage. Fickle foundation. It is not in your family. It is not in your business savvy. It is not in your possessions. It is not in your bank account. It is in Christ. Ladies, look up here. It is not in your man that you place your confidence. It is not in your marriage. It is not in your purse. It is in Christ. Amen? This week I went to a funeral of a 31 year old man. 31 years old. A young wife, a four year old son, a one year old daughter. Men are fragile. Amen. They're fragile. Marriages fragile. It's a it's a fragile foundation. And Christ is saying, you don't put your confidence there. You put it in me. This is why we sing the great hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Why? Because all other ground is what? Sinking sand. All other ground is. So we place our confidence, our security, our identity in Christ. Amen? That's why Paul's praising That's why you and I can praise. Because when this world falls apart, and guess what? It is. Guess what? I will. Guess what? Your wife will. Guess what? Your husband will. When everything falls apart, we're on the solid rock. Amen? That's our identity. And Paul's saying, listen, I am in Christ. That is reason for us to rejoice this morning. Okay, now this is the point in the sermon where... um, the, the pilot comes on and he, he shows the little seatbelt sign. He comes on the radio and says, turbulence is coming. Right? This, this is that point, all right? So, so here's the next one. Um, why is Paul's praising? Number one, he's in Christ. Number two, he says this, we are chosen in Christ. Paul's praising God because he is chosen. He's praising God for that. Now, now here, this is really funny this week. I had two or three guys call me and say, uh, hey, what are you preaching this week? I said, well, we're in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And they oh, really? Yeah, really. That's where, that's where we are, Ephesians 1, 3 through. Okay, so, so here's what passages like this make me do as a preacher. They make me decide, am I going to tickle ears? Or when I come to a text, am I going to preach it? That's what it makes me do. This is why I love preaching through books of the Bible. Actually, I love and hate it all at the same time. Because it forces me to preach things that I otherwise might skirt around. So I've got a choice to make this morning. Do do I skirt around and brush aside? Or do I hold up something and preach something and proclaim something that Paul says we can praise? What what do I do? R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite theologians. And he said... uh, i think this is great his first church that he was hired at he set this little sign beside his desk that said this you are required rc to preach teach and believe everything the bible says is true not what you want to be true i believe that it's my job to preach teach and believe everything the bible says is true not what i want to be true amen amen so, so I've got to preach this, that God looks at, or Paul looked at this and says, I am chosen, and I rejoice in that. It's not a thing for controversy, it's a point of worship, he says. Okay, so, so let me give you some, some things that might help us out here. And, and let me point you to the text here first. Verse 4, look at verse 4. He says this, Even as He chose us. It's the word elect in other scriptures. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So you've got this word chosen. And then look at verse 5. In love, He predestined us. That's the word like before the horizon, before the boundaries. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Skip down to verse 11. Look what it says here. We've got this inheritance having been predestined. So, so it makes us do something with this. We can't just brush, this, brush it aside. Like we've got to figure out how does this fit? Like this has got to shape our theology too. Okay, so, so let me give you some, some, maybe some help here. I'm going to give you five or six things with this word election, the, the word he uses for chosen. Um, five or six little sub points here. Number one, election is a biblical word. It's a biblical word. It's not something that I'm looking at or somebody else looks at and says, hey, let me try to throw this in over the top of the Bible. Let me see if I can, like, make the Bible say this. It is, we're reading Ephesians, and it says he chose, and it comes down to verse 5, he predestined. Verse 11, he predestined. I I know that some of this is, like, laden with emotional weight here. When you just hear those words, that in some way in God's sovereignty that he determines that he freely gives grace and he can freely withhold grace. I know there's a part of us that gets, that gets very emotional with that. And so here's what we've got to do. We've got to be biblically faithful. And if the Bible says something, we've got to figure out how do we, how do we allow that to shape how we view God, how, how we think about God. When the word God comes, that this is a part of that picture. Okay, so so we've got to do some work here. So it's a biblical word. If you just start reading the Bible, you can't escape the word. Like you start in Genesis 1. Here's what you're going to start seeing. That God created. I didn't choose to create it. God chose to create it. You're going to get to to chapter uh, uh, 12. And you're going to see that God, it says he chose Abraham. I didn't choose Abraham. God says he chose Abraham. Not something I'm making up, something the Bible's saying. It's going to say that he chose Jacob. I didn't choose Jacob. Jacob didn't choose Jacob. God chose Jacob. I can't even explain it. He says he chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. I'm just reading the text here. You start moving on, it's going to say that he chose David. He didn't choose one of the 11 other brothers. He chose David. You start reading on in Jeremiah that before um, Jeremiah was born, he's in his mother's womb, that somehow God jumped in there and said, you're the man for this job, right? And so you just start reading the Bible and you see this. It's not something in the Bible. It's something that's throughout the Bible. That makes us do something with it. Okay, you get to the New Testament. You're going to see that Jesus, he chose his 12 disciples. You're going to see that, uh, I mean, you you could go on and on here. In John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, it's going to say, why did we love? Because he first loved us. That he's the initiator. All throughout the Bible, you see God's initiating love to us. Not something I'm making up. Not something that some theologian's making up. It's just trying to read the text and be faithful to what the Bible's saying here. Okay, so it's a biblical word. Now, I'm going to try to trace um, through. And by the way, this word, eklego is the word in Ephesians chapter 1. That is in uh, the aorist tense, which means it's a completed action that God has done that. He has chosen. It's in the middle voice. It means it it's, it's reflective, meaning that it's, it's something he does for himself. Okay, now I want to take you on just a, a quick biblical journey in the New Testament. Flip to Romans real quick. Actually, flip to Acts first. We'll flip back to Acts chapter 9. So in the Old Testament, that word is used over 120 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's used over 20 times, like 22 times, I think. So it's used throughout the Scriptures. So I just want to read some passages. I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm just going to read them because here was the thing for me. I didn't even know these verses existed until I was 22 because nobody ever read them to me. I never read them for myself. So I'm not even going to really comment on them. I'm just going to read them and let you figure out and and start rustling through. What does this look like? To make sure that you're taking in the biblical scope of what God says about himself. So, okay, in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is Paul's story. We've talked about this a lot. That that Paul, on the road to Damascus, he is uh, confronted with this light. He sees Jesus, experiences Jesus. And here's what God says to Ananias in the middle of what Ananias needs to go tell Paul. In in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it'll be on the screen for you as well. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, and this is why. For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument, same word, chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Okay, now flip over to Romans. Just keep flipping to the right in your Bible. Over to Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to read through a passage for you. That's all I'm doing is just reading. Romans chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 10 and read. About 10 verses here. Romans 9, starting in verse 10. And not only so, but... And and by the way, this is some really hard, rough edges here. Okay? So let me just prepare you for that. Romans 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So they had done nothing yet in order that God's purpose, here's the word, of election, leggo, might continue, not because of works, but because of, him, because of his call. Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He anticipates this response. He anticipates our man-centered response to that. Our God, what do you think you're doing here? Are you crazy? Okay, he anticipates that response now look at what he says here in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Verse 16. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. I've raised you up so that I could destroy your army, is what he's saying. So that I can show my power in you, that, that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. That is the reason God does everything he does, that his name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he, uh, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God's got the right to give or to withhold it. Now, he anticipates the response again. How do, like when, I read that, when I read that for the first time, you know what I thought? God, I don't know if I like this. I don't know what I think about you right now. He anticipates that response in in Rodney's heart. And then he writes verse 19. Look at verse 19. Will you say to me, this is God saying, will you say to me, you, will you say to me, God saying, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What uh, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Hard, hard 11 verses, right? Okay, keep flipping to the right. First Peter 2. Just keep flipping to the right. If you have trouble finding it, just look up on the screen here. First Peter 2. Here's what it says. This is Peter. Okay, so that was Paul writing. This is Peter writing. 1 Peter two nine. But you are a chosen, a klego race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Flip to Revelation 17. Or actually, just look on the screen just to save us some time here. You can write it down. Revelation 17. This is John speaking. Revelation 17, 12 through 14. Here's what he says. And the 10 horns that you saw are the 10 kings who have not, re- uh, not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Verse 13. These are, uh, these are of one mind and hand over the, their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Last phrase. And those with him are called and, here's keyword key word, chosen and faithful. Okay, now I want to give you some hard words of Jesus. So we looked at Luke and Acts. Luke wrote that. Paul wrote. Peter wrote. John wrote. And then flip back to John chapter 6, or, or look on the screen. This is the words of Jesus. Jesus is preaching a hard, hard sermon in, in John 6. You can read it for yourself. Um, he starts with a big crowd. By the end of the sermon, he's got very few. Okay, he's, he's left back with his 12 disciples. That's what he's got at the end of this thing normally happens when you have this conversation okay look at john 6 here's what he says in verse 37 and all the father father gives me so all the father gives me will come to me so those the father gives me those are going to come to me and i love the balance so look at the rest of the verse and whoever comes to me i will never cast out so whoever comes that's who the father's going to come but then he says but whoever comes so come on right so you get both of those in there okay now look at um verse 44 john chapter 6 no one can that's a that's a can is an issue of ability may is an issue of permission so if you said you may do that you're saying you've got permission you can do that is an issue of ability he's saying for no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him that same word for draw is used in acts for people dragging somebody out of the city for no effort uh, unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day then look at verse 65 john chapter 6 65 these are all the words of jesus and he jesus said this is why i told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father okay now if you flip over a couple of chapters in john chapter 15 here's what it says in john chapter 15 and i'm just trying to show you that this is a biblical word we've got to do something with it like you can't just ignore it. so john chapter 15 verse 16 Says this, you did not choose me. This is Jesus saying this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Okay, so, so you see the picture here. That this is, this is all throughout the Bible. It's not just in the Bible, it's throughout it. And so we can't just brush it aside. We've got to make sure that we deal with it biblically and that it weighs in on our theology. Let me ask you the question. Does that, those verses that we're reading here, massive portions of scripture, does that shape how you think about God? Like, does that fit into your view of God? If not, maybe God needs to blow up your view and and to, to fill it with a bigger, more compelling biblical view. And again, this is not controversy for Paul. This is worship for Paul. He's saying, God has chosen me. Thank God, right? So we can be theologians or we can be good theologians. But to be good theologians, here's what we all have to do. We all have to read our Bible and to let all the Bible speak into our theology. Okay, so it's a, I'm just saying this. It's a biblical idea. So election's biblical. Let me tell you the next one here. Election is in Christ. So it says this that He chose us in who, in Christ. In verse four, that He chose us, right? So it's never apart from Christ. It's never by um. It's it's never by another. It is always in Christ that we're chosen. Next part, election is before the foundation of the world. That's so what He says in verse four. Even as He chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, everybody look up here. Is this not a beautiful thing to think about? Before there were giraffes, sharks, amoebas, protons, stars, galaxies, that God knew your name. God set his affection on you. Before there was time, God knew you. Before the foundation of the world, he says. Look at verse 11. Election is a part of the comprehensive plan of God. So election is just one piece of the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. How? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Look at what he says here. Who works all things. Can we hold on to that as a believer? Works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you know what we can say as a believer? That just like Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery faked his death to his father sinful things and at the end of that we like joseph can say this what you intended for harm god intended for good for the saving of many lives amen we can claim that we can say with the cross people killed jesus they did a jerry-rigged trial right falsely accused him they murdered him on a cross right sinful activities, but we can look at the cross and say, what they intended for evil, God, in Acts 4, said, I predestined it for good, for you. We can claim that. How about a Romans 8, 28? That God works all things out for the good of those who who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ, we can claim that there is nothing that happens to us that is not meant by God at the end of the day for our good. Amen? We can claim that. It's just a piece of the big picture of God's sovereignty. Okay, let's keep going. Election, and now this is a big one. Election is not at odds with the necessity of faith. It does not negate that you have to believe. You've got to do it. It doesn't negate that. This is what I love about this passage. In verse 4, you're chosen. Verse 5, you're predestined. Verse 11, you're predestined. Now look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. In him, when you receive the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and look what it says, and believed in him. So you've got election over here, and you've got, you have got to believe. You do. It does not negate the necessity that we are called to believe in Jesus. I love what Spurgeon said. Somebody came up to him and said, my favorite preacher, a few centuries ago. Somebody came up to him and said, how do you reconcile those two things? Election over here and man's responsibility over here. Here's what he said. I don't have to reconcile friends. Amen. I don't have to reconcile friends. I don't have to do it. Because both of them are there. God over here and then us believing over here. J.I. I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, I think makes a really good point. He says this. There's two things you've got to know about God. Number one, God is king. And as king, he is the sovereign. Amen. That's God. Now, here's the second thing. He is judge. And as judge, he holds you and me responsible to believe. We've got to know both of them. Not just one, but both. Next one. Election highlights the grace of God. Look at verse 6. Why does he do all this? To the praise of his glorious grace. That's why. To the praise of his glorious grace. You see that same phrase at the end of verse 12, end of verse 14. Why does he do it? To magnify his grace. Now look at me right here. Everybody look at me. Do you know why God saved you? It is not because he looked at you and saw good. Because if you know me, like I know me, there's nothing that he would find. You know why he saved me? To show off and display his grace to the world that's why you're saved ephesians 2 says by the grace of god that enables this beautiful faith right that that's why election hot it humbles us doesn't it it humbles us that there's not good in me there's not ephesians 2 says i am hopeless apart from god i am dead in my sin But God made me alive to magnify his grace to the world. To put his grace on display for the world to see. We get to sit back and say, we have got a gracious God. That's what election does. Last one for you. Election is mysterious. I'm not called to explain every detail of it. All I'm called to do is preach it. When I come to it in a text, to be faithful to what the Bible says. That's it. And I love what Spurgeon said when when he comes to a mystery in a text. This is what he said when he comes to a mystery. Spurgeon says, when I come to a mystery and and discover there in the text a mystery, I build an altar and I worship God there. May we build an altar around the mysterious thing called election and may we worship there. Go uh, Go back to grade school with me for a second. Do you remember the first time you felt just extremely ordinary? I mean, what do all of our parents do? I mean, if you're a parent, what do you do to your kid? You you tell your kid that they can be the next Einstein, right? I mean, I remember my mom. There was a time that I thought I was going to be good in basketball. Pretty funny, isn't it, huh? There was a time that I thought I was going to be good in basketball. So I grabbed my ball. I'm practicing left and right, right? I mean, my parents are giving me the, listen, you're the next MJ. You just, go shoot, you just go shoot the ball. This is, you, this is what's coming for you. I'm like, Mom, I am 5'7 and I can't jump, all right? I am not going to be MJ, right? Okay, so I remember the first time I preached in my home church, an old lady came up to me and said, Listen, you're going to be the next Billy Graham. No, I'm not, all right? No, I'm not going to be the next Billy Graham. Do you remember the first time you just felt overly ordinary? I'm in the third grade. We take our standardized test. I think it's tax in Texas. We take our standardized test. I bomb it. I mean, royal bomb. They They kind of schedule a conference with my parents, right? So you know it's bad when you get the conference from your parents after the test. And here's what they tell my parents. You just need to accept the fact that Rodney is going to be a C student. That's what you're getting here. And I remember my best friend, Brian Engelman, blew the top out of it. He gets... In this little club, the the GT, you know the GT gifted and talented club? I'm in the untalented and dork club. That's where I was, right? Do, Do you remember this the first time you felt really ordinary? Now listen, when we feel that, you know what it causes every person in this room to do? To try to run to a place that we don't feel ordinary. So we'll run to sports. Later on, I ran back into the classroom and tried to excel there. We'll run to our job and spend our lives, spend our wills trying to make a dollar, trying to make a name for ourselves there. We'll run to our marriage to try to fill that. We'll run to a million different things. Now look at me here. Here's what election says to us. You need run no further than Christ. He has set his affection on you. Not ordinary, extraordinary. Your acceptance is not in a paycheck. It is not in a bank account. It is in Christ. That's what election does for us. For the first 22 years of my life, when I would read Ephesians chapter 1, I hated reading it. But can I just tell you now, with Paul, I praise God when I read that. I love reading because you know what it tells me? I need run no further than Christ. That's where my acceptance is. Let's keep going. Number three, Paul builds an altar around that mystery. He worships God there. Number three, here's the second reason why Paul is is worshiping. We'll we'll move fast here. Number one, we're in Christ. Number two, he's chosen us. Number three, here's the third one. Because God adopted us. Look at verse 4, or look at verse 5. In love, verse 5, he predestined us, what? For adoption. For adoption. Now, now I heard a guy say this one time, that you can illustrate every kind of spiritual principle. You can just pack all your illustrations into two categories. Number one, marriage. Number two, parenting. And whatever parenting adds to kind of the, the illustration inventory, adoption multiplies. It multiplies it. Okay, so let me just kind of draw maybe a few observations that I think adoption brings to the surface for us that we can praise God for in here this morning, that adoption does. Let me give you a few. Number one, adoption is carefully planned. If you're going to adopt somebody, you know what you've got to do? You've got to think about the hows, whens, what, how are we going to make this thing work? It has got to be carefully planned. If, if you've gone through the process, which I know some of you have, then you know it's a grueling process. They're going to do. Uh, they're going to make sure your credentials. I mean, they've got a whole process they go through to make sure you're you're able to adopt. It is a carefully planned thing. Now look at me. Your adoption before there was a star, a galaxy. Your adoption papers were written. He predestined them. It said. That your adoption papers, were they existed before time existed. Is that not beautiful? That, that it was a carefully planned and orchestrated thing on behalf of God to you, to me. Next one. Okay, it's carefully planned. Adoption, it saves. Now, I want you to think about the situation people are adopted from. Typically, you're not adopted when the, when the situation is perfect, Right? That's typically not when it happens. You're typically adopted when you are in serious situations. Now, let me give you a global picture of adoption real quick. There are roughly 175 million. Now, I'm kind of taking maybe a middle ground of estimates that are below that and above that. 175 million orphans on this planet. The population of America is 300 million. 300 million. Over half of America, orphans. In Africa, every 15 seconds, a child becomes an AIDS orphan. Each year, over 14 million orphans age out of the system. At age 16, they grow out of the system. They are on the streets having to do their own thing. They're, they're done with, with the help. In, okay, now these are statistics from, the Russia, uh, from Russia and the UK, uh, Ukraine. It says this. One in ten of those, when they hit the streets, one in ten of those commit suicide by 18. Two years in, commit suicide. Six in ten girls sell themselves into prostitution. Six in ten sell themselves into prostitution. Seven in ten of the boys that age out devote themselves to a life of crime. I would say that is a serious situation. Amen? I would say as a believer, we should be about adoption. Amen? Because there are kids that without it have no other hope. Without it, I have no other way. We should be about that to save from human suffering. But even more than that, we should be about adoption. You know why? Because you have been adopted, and I have been adopted. So let me remind you of our condition. Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our sin. We are following the prince of the power of this world. We are his disciples. We are objects of God's wrath. We are on the wrong team in rebellion against God, and God looks at us before the foundation of the world and he adopted you he adopted you saving us from the consequences of sin satan and death and bringing us into the family so we could get the heirlooms so we could get the inheritance that's adoption isn't that beautiful that god saves us there here's another picture that that adoption is costly Right? The adoption is a costly thing. If you're going to adopt, it's going to cost you money and a lot of red tape. When God adopted you, it cost him his son. For God to parade you into the house, he had to throw his son out. For him to take you in, he had to stiff arm his son. For him to call you by his name, he had to cast his son out. That's adoption. It's costly. It says it's through his blood. Last one. Adoption transforms the child. Our neighbors at a previous house, they adopted a little girl from China. Her name is Kaylee. And and here was the funniest thing. Kaylee, um, they probably got Kaylee when she was less than a year old. Chinese baby, right? I mean, you look at her, Chinese. That's what she looks like. Okay, now now here was the, the beautiful thing. You know what she spoke? English. You know what her mannerisms look like? Her mom and dad's. All the little idiosyncrasies that her mom and dad had, she developed. You know why? Because that's her parents. And you're going to look like your parents. God adopted us. And so here's the beautiful picture. We begin to look like Jesus. That's the end game. That we start to look like Him, feel like Him, think like Him. That we get transformed into the likeness of Christ, as Romans 8 says. I want to draw your attention to two verses. Look at Ephesians 5, uh, 1, 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Flip to Ephesians 5, 1 now. So 1, 5, we're adopted. 5, 1, imitate Jesus. Imitate God. Why? Because you are dearly the children. You can't separate them. 1-5 five and 5-1. Five, when we're adopted, we begin to look like our dad. That's what we get. Adoption. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That we are adopted. Paul builds the altar around adoption and says, I am going to sit here and I am going to praise my great God for it. Number four. Almost done. So God's adopted us. Paul praises God. Blessed be our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. He has adopted us in Christ. And here's number four. Because God redeemed us. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Here's what redemption magnifies. It magnifies our sorry condition. Our serious condition. It takes you back to the image of the people of Exodus. Or in in Exodus. People of Israel, listen, are in bondage to a tyrant dictator Pharaoh. They cannot get up tomorrow and say, you know what, Pharaoh? I'm out. See ya. Can't do it. They are enslaved to him. Just like we have our Pharaoh called sin, death, and Satan. Enslaved. Romans 6 calls us a slave to sin. You don't think you're a slave to sin? Live perfect. How's that go for it, right? Slaves to sin. And here comes our great saving God. Just like he saved the people in Exodus, he comes for his people in the New Testament. And he saves us. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Dead, objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, 4. But God made us alive. How did he do it? How did he redeem us? It says through his blood. He bought us with the blood of Jesus. Why did he redeem us? Because of his great grace. Look at verse 8. According to the riches of this grace that he lavished. Don't you like that word lavished? That he lavished upon you. Look at you. If you are saved, it is because God has lavished his grace on you. Can we praise that this morning? Can we lift up our face and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Last one. Number five. Because God has sealed us. Look at verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Look what it says. In Him were what? We are or were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Look at the last phrase. To the praise of his glory. Okay, now look at this. God did more than give his life for you. God gave his life to you. God did more than give his life for you. He gave it to you. A precious gospel truth goes like this, that when you believe in Jesus... The Holy Spirit indwells you, inhabits you, empowers you, counsels you, comforts you, guides you, leads you, convicts you, grows you in holiness, makes Christ appear beautiful. The Holy Spirit does all that. We have got the Holy Spirit, the promised one, right? We're sealed with, Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And now look at these two things here. I think it gives us two things. Number one, being sealed with the Holy Spirit means that we are secure. I believe in the security of the believer. And you know why I believe it? Because I think God saved me, He sustains me, and He will safely carry me home. Whole picture, I think, is God doing, right? That it's God at work in us. Philippians one says He's gonna. That he who began this work in you carries that work on to completion. That's why I believe we're secure because He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. So we're secure in that. And here's here's maybe even a better one and more beautiful one. The Holy Spirit he becomes our guarantee. Our guarantee. Okay, now that is the picture in, in modern Greek language. It would still be used for kind of an engagement ring. You would give a ring to somebody as a promise for what's to come. But here's where I think that imagery falls a little bit short. is just because you give a wedding ring, that is not part of a marriage. A ring is not marriage. So, so maybe we need to think about it this way. That the guarantee is more like a down payment. When you buy a home, or let's say you're selling the home. And here's what somebody's going to do. They're going to give you a down payment. I'm going to give you this cash, and it's going to be one of many payments to come. So it's a part of the picture. It's a part of what I'm giving you. It's just not all of what I'm giving you. And here's what Paul is saying. That this Holy Spirit that indwells you, that has sealed you, it is your guarantee of more to come. We are in Christ. All of these great spiritual blessings, we're redeemed, we're adopted, we're chosen. We're all of these things. And Paul is saying this, but all it is is a down payment of the future. There will be a day, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, where no eye has ever seen, ear has ever heard, heart has ever imagined what I have prepared for you. Read Revelation 21, right? There's going to be new heavens, a new earth. Not your old body, but your new one. We get everything is made new. Right? There is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no cancer, there is no death. We can have a real long list there. There is nothing but perfection. And in that moment, the glory of God will be our Son, and the praise of God will be our song. Amen? That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It's the guarantee of that, that that is what we as people in Christ get to look forward to. Isn't that beautiful? Paul builds the altar and he prays and he praises over that. And we'll kind of throw this last parting shot out there. Because of these blessings, here's what we, you, me, all of us in this room can know. We are loved by Jesus. I want to say that one more time. That you, not not the we in here, you are loved by Jesus. In an Atlanta newspaper a few years ago, this ad appeared. Ready for this? A little risque. Here we go. Single black female seeks male companionship. Ethnicity unimportant. I'm a very good-looking girl who loves to play. I like long walks in the wood, riding in your pickup. Hunting, camping, fishing trips. Sounds like a good woman to me so far. I don't know about y'all. I love cozy winter nights. Lying by the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work wearing only what nature has given me. Told you it was risky, right? Kiss me and I'm all yours. Call. This... Seven digit number and asked for Daisy. Look at me here. 15,000 men called that number. 15,000 called it. Only to reach the Atlanta Humane Society, where an eight week old black lab <laughs> awaited adoption. You know what that tells me? That Look at me. We're done. That we are a people looking for love in a million different places where God is looking at us saying this. It will only be found right here. May that be you and may that be me. Let's pray. <clears throat> 11 verses, packed with content that makes Paul sing, that makes Paul praise. That's what it does. He looks at this and says, I am redeemed. Can you believe it? I am adopted. Can you believe that? God would choose me. How in the world does that happen? And it causes him to praise. It causes him to worship. It causes him to lift up his voice and say, that is my God and I am his. That's what it causes Paul to do. I pray that for us. That our view of God and what he has done in you, on your behalf, would cause our heart to sing like John Mackey that the book of Ephesians might set our heart to the melody of God's grace. That it would do that for us, in us. So here's how we'll close today. Kevin's going to play a song, Hosanna. Hosanna is praise. Thank God when we get to say, Hosanna! That is our God! Look at what He has done on my behalf, for me. Look at this Great and glorious God. So we'll leave singing. We'll leave praising. We'll wrap this up by saying, Our God is great. Look at him in Ephesians 1. He's beautiful. He's worthy of our praises. He's worthy of our life. He is worthy of everything. So, God, we love you and we pray for that end. I pray that over us. God, that we would sing well with our lives, not just our lips, but our lives. Tomorrow we wake up in wonder and awe at your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.